0: Daniel chapter 4 verses 1 through 9. King Nebuchadnezzar, to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion endures from generation to generation. But they could not make known to me its interpretation. At last, Daniel came in before me. He who was named Belteshazzar, after the name of my God, and in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And I told him the dream, saying, O Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you, and that no mystery is too difficult for you. Tell me the visions of my dream that I saw and their interpretation. May God apply the reading of this word to our heart. You may be seated.
1: Please join me in a word of prayer uh, before the preaching of God's word. God, we thank you for your worship service so far this day. We pray that as we continue our worship, that we worship you rightly as we learn about you, so that we might worship you better and become more like you, Lord. May your spirit work through what you have for us to learn this day. In your son's name we pray. Amen. So these first nine verses have a, a lot going on. Some of it more obvious, some less obvious. There's a lot of little kind of things going on, too, that seem like puzzle pieces or something that's hard to put together. And I can't help but think about this as like a TV detective drama. So uh, as I'm sure 100% resonates with our pastors Nick and Pete's experience and Stevens as well, usually you see in a show there's some like super fancy post-industrial loft that the detectives work out of. It's really dark and all this. You have the theater lighting right up next to a board where they're looking at a detective situation. And you have on the board all these push pins in with these things that are so unconnected and different and all of this. And then you surround it with red yarn and somehow red yarn magically in the middle makes it all clear. Aha, this is how all these random things connect together. And so that's going to be our approach today. I could not think of a certain title for this sermon. And so I straight up listed out our five pieces of evidence to figure out what today's sermon is going to be about. So you will see on the back of your bulletin, pun 100% intended, we have our bulletin board with our five pieces of evidence. We are going to wrap our yarn around them and see what comes in the center of the picture here. We're going to see what this passage has for us from things that seem disparate, far apart, or strange, some of which you may not have even seen is there. So uh, this is going to be a bit of a study through this, but at the end, we will see what God has for us today. If you look at Daniel verses 1 through 4, we have this praise to God from Nebuchadnezzar. But what you don't see is if you were to compare your Bible, your English version, to the Vulgate, so the Latin scriptures, those verses, first four, or those first three verses, excuse me, would be verses 31 through 33 of Daniel 3. So Daniel 3 has in the Vulgate, So in Latin, we have these three verses as belonging to Daniel chapter 3. And if you were to look at a modern version or translation of the Masoretic text, so all the men um, who were documenting down in mass all of the scriptures, and we have copying and writing all of this down in the compiling of of codices for our scriptures. If you were to look at a modern translation of them, you would also see these verses at the end of Daniel 3. I think it's reasonable to think that it should be at the end of Daniel 3. It makes sense why they would do this. So we're going to take a look and see why it might make sense. But then we're going to look at why in the end it's in Daniel 4 and why it's appropriate and how it actually applies knowing why it's there applies to our text today. So if you look at Daniel, let's look through the history and pattern. We know why they might think this naturally flows here. We have them translating, right, or uh, I should say, the translation of the Masoretic texts into Latin before we ever get to the English. And during this time, all the Masoretes have done is add vowel markers to the ends of verses to show this is the end of the verse. They haven't added chapters. They haven't made the designations that we're familiar with that are uninspired. They're helpful and practical for us, but they are uninspired. And so as they make these markings, we then have The uh, Latin Vulgate coming out in the uh, 1500s, 16th century, and they are doing their best to figure out where should we put some helpful breaks and dividers. And so when they look at these verse markings and the ends of these verses, and they're making decisions, what they see in Daniel 1, flip over a couple pages, they see in Daniel 1, at the verses 18 through 20, they have Uh, Before reading those verses, they have Daniel 1 where it's describing this whole scene. It's describing the setting of Daniel in exile. And then you have in verses 18 through 20, you have this praise and extolling of God. Uh, Verse 18 of Daniel 1. At the end of the time when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them, and among all of them none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah. Therefore they stood before the king. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. So we see this absolute praise. Well, the reason it's praise and acknowledgement is it's talking about the glory of God, because in verse 16, it's God who gives them the learning, the skill, the wisdom. So we see we have teaching in Daniel chapter 1, and then after a portion, we have this praise. And then you look in Daniel 2, and it gets really explicit with this pattern. We go through the visions, and Daniel uh, interpreting Nebuchadnezzar's dream, and how does Daniel chapter 2 end in uh, Daniel two forty six through 49. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell on his face and paid homage to Daniel and commanded that an offering and incense be offered up to him. The king answered and said to Daniel. Truly your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal the mystery. Then the king gave Daniel high honors, many great gifts, made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. Daniel made a request of Shadrach, Meshach, Excuse me, a request of the king, and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon. But Daniel remained at the king's court. So we have, again, this model of we have all of this teaching from God, and then we have Nebuchadnezzar honoring God, acknowledging that there is Daniel's God who is powerful. And then in Daniel 3, we go through the fiery furnace he witnesses Jesus Christ himself the second person of the trinity in the fiery furnace with three men he commanded to have killed and after they have come out acknowledging that there is a god we see in Daniel 3 at the end of uh, 20 at the end of 3 and 28 through 30 it says Nebuchadnezzar answered and, and said who is able to rescue in this way. Then their king, the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. So after that, you then have the verses of Daniel 4 that are in question. If you're trying to make a judgment call, do they go at the beginning or at the end? Well, to this point, we haven't started a portion of, of Daniel, a, a, a story or a pericope, a passage of scripture, where it starts with the praise. It's been ending, and if anything... You see it start in verse one and where it says King Nebuchadnezzar to all peoples and nations and languages that dwell on all the earth. He is making a decree, hear ye, hear ye. And the verses before in Daniel three say there's a decree. But we will see there's actually a seven, about a seven to nine year gap between these things going on. And the reason we know that this belongs in Daniel four is because of Daniel four. So we're gonna take a look at that. What we end up having is The Latin Vulgate, they listed this as being a part of chapter three, continuation of the worship of God. You then have when the Masoretic codices are then published and printed further and further, you have in the tradition of the church them now using the verse marking in chapters that Latin put in, the Vulgate put in, but then you have the Reformation. And in the Reformation, people can start to look at the scriptures and compare them only against the scriptures. Again, looking more and more at the original languages. And what do we see? We actually see that the two people most known, there might have, there are probably others, but two most known who call out this as being in chapter four, not as the Vulgate would have it in three, are John Calvin and Martin Luther. Okay, we're a Reformed Baptist church. That's, that's as good as gold, right? Well, let's look at why. Why do they think that's the case? So let's jump to the end of chapter four of Daniel. And let's look at verses 34 and uh, 34 and 35 of Daniel four. So Nebuchadnezzar, as we will see later in this sermon series, goes, has his dream interpreted. He has his time of insanity. And now he is restored. And, and it says in verse 34, At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lift my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honor him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All of the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? You'll see this is very, very similar to what we have at the beginning. It is from the perspective of Nebuchadnezzar. He is decreeing the everlasting nature of God's dominion over earth and his glory. And so what we have is, you may have heard before, it's called an inclusio. And we have an author saying, I'm about to tell you a story or a portion of scripture in the middle. But so you do not get confused. I'm going to say at the beginning what this is about. And I will say at the end what this is about. Do not get lost in this. That is essentially what they're doing. So we know that with this inclusio, we, we have confidence that actually Nebuchadnezzar or uh, Nebuchadnezzar's words and decree in verses 1 through 3 are actually written after the accounts that we're about to read and go through in Daniel 4. So we shouldn't read that as Nebuchadnezzar states all these wonderful things about God that are true and then experiences the following experience, but, experiences. But instead, this passage is assembled saying... Having known what has happened to me, I have worshipped God, or I am saying these things about God. From there, within that, knowing that, and as our inclusio, it brings us to the meat of it, which is what's in the middle, and we know its intent. So, this inclusio, it highlights for us, because of the matching, we know that this first few verses, they belong in Daniel 4. And it's significant, because if they do not belong in Daniel 4, if they do not go there, it's not an inclusio. At the end, we have Nebuchadnezzar going through this experience and learning, but we're going to look further at why is Daniel Daniel 4 written differently than all the rest of Daniel 1 through 3 so far, and the weird tense and tone and change of perspective that we see in Daniel 4 that we don't see in the first three chapters. And so there's a lot of intentional writing and thought process going into why it is this way. And it is to draw your attention to the glory of God, who has dominion over an everlasting kingdom that lasts from generation to generation. So then, if we look at the author and we look at who's writing this, you might be tempted to say, "Well, it's the Book of Daniel. It's Daniel." Or you'd say, "Well, let's look at the first eight. Uh, excuse me. Let's look at the first eighteen verses and see. Wait, Nebuchadnezzar is speaking in the first person." Look with me, uh, Daniel 1, it's King Nebuchadnezzar to all peoples. It might sound a bit third person. Then it says, it has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done. In verse 4, it says, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease. He then goes on to tell the story of him being at ease, calling in the magicians, calling in the Chaldeans, and then ultimately calling in Daniel, having his vision and, the vi- and telling of his vision in verse 13, I saw in the visions of my head as I lay in the bed. So this is all Nebuchadnezzar so far. But then we get to verse 19, when Daniel interprets the dream. And it doesn't switch to Daniel speaking in the first person. Instead, we have a third person account. It says, then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was dismayed. And he goes through and interprets the dream. He interprets the dream. And then after that, in verse 28, the outcome of the dream. The fulfillment of the vision that was given to Nebuchadnezzar happens, and it is still all in the third person. And then at the very end, in verses 34 through 36, our inclusio, we're back to Nebuchadnezzar and the first person perspective. So what we can say with confidence is God is the author of the scripture. It is God, and he is having it laid out the way he intends. But I would say to me it is quite clear that when you look at the approach to this passage, it is different because Daniel is writing at a level in which is something beyond our ability, and it is something that clearly someone who has been blessed with wisdom and knowledge and skill has, which is he is cluing us into many things that are the context of our text and the purpose of our text through these writing styles. So rather than thinking what the author seems to be jumping about randomly, Let's start to ask and consider what is going on in these. So before we, get, we address the, um, the inclusio or the first few verses, let's think of it this way. Because we know that it comes after he experiences all these things, let's start with Nebuchadnezzar's narrative in verse 4. So look at his narrative. It's him describing him being at ease and his experience. And then we heard it read in verse 9... Uh, by our brother Stephen, he read, O Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you and that no mystery is too difficult for you, tell me the visions of my dream that I saw in their interpretation. Nebuchadnezzar says, I know you have the spirit of the holy gods. no. Uh, we, we should be hearing, no, not multiple gods. That is not what's going on here. And yet, it seems appropriate that it's said because Nebuchadnezzar does not know God. God knows Nebuchadnezzar, but Nebuchadnezzar does not know God. And God does not know Nebuchadnezzar as he knows Daniel and as he knows every other saint. Nebuchadnezzar is showing his false understanding. So he lays out this his perspective, we see this perspective, and so we can follow along until the tense change or the perspective change in verse 19, we can see this as Nebuchadnezzar dictating his experience and follow along. But then in verse 19, we change from Nebuchadnezzar and his experience and what he thinks he knows and understands to God and God's perspective and what God knows and says will happen and does happen, and then the actions of God on Nebuchadnezzar. So the the tense change shouldn't be into Nebuchadnezzar saying, and then this is what God did to me. This is God saying Nebuchadnezzar will still not know fully God at the end of this. He will be humbled, but I will tell you through my servant Daniel the interpretation of my vision and the actions I will do to humble Nebuchadnezzar. And so it makes sense that it's not from the perspective of Nebuchadnezzar. And then what happens at the end? We get back to his account, and we know, okay, he says his account, his reaction after being restored from this humiliation, including then the inclusio to cue us in to the purpose of this this passage. What does Nebuchadnezzar do? He does what happens when God humbles us, when we receive the actions of God. When God does his action on us, we respond. It is effectual and we respond. God has done his work, and Nebuchadnezzar responds to God. So this change of perspective makes it makes a lot of sense and it makes you slow down and draw in closer into being what's being taught in this passage. So having looked at an, so far what's going on with what verses are where and those th- and why it matters, the inclusio, and looking at why the author is changing perspective. Let's consider the style of this. And the first one I'll call you out to is the writing style seems to be that of an epistle. It starts off with an epistle. So we're going to look at Daniel um, four, one through three, and we'll start to make our way through the verses for us today. but we're going to look at this. And see if this has a familiar feel. King Nebuchadnezzar, to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion endures from generation to generation. Then please keep your hand there, because you're going to want to flip back, but turn with me to Ephesians. going to go to ephesians chapter 1 all right so we had king nebuchadnezzar to all peoples nations and languages ephesians 1 paul an apostle of christ jesus by the will of god to the saints who are in ephesus and are faithful in christ jesus grace to you and peace from god our father and lord jesus christ blessed be the god and father of our lord jesus christ who has blessed us in christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places this feel is very familiar. You can tell it is, it is almost as if Nebuchadnezzar is writing this with his own hand or dictating it, and it's being written down. There's this ep- uh, epistle feel to the beginning, and then it changes into his narrative. His narrative in the next few verses, again, when he is telling his story. He's telling a first-person perspective story. Then after that, Daniel's portion, the, or the portion that seems, although it is all documented by Daniel, it, is, it seems as though it's written more as a historical, like almost like a documentary. It is being documented in a historical style, writing what happens, what was said. He said, she said, this is what happened. Even though it all could be described in a more narrative fashion. And then we end with that epistle again, that epistle feel. And this is not a random collection of styles, no, God is using Daniel and the skill of his writing to highlight, again, various aspects. The epistle language is very clear. If you took nothing away from this sermon and what we will continue to make way through in the next little bit in this passage, and you only took away the first three verses and said, well, I don't understand this whole passage clearly, but it says, how great are God's signs and mighty his wonders— His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion endures from generation to generation. You're right. You've got it. You've got it. An epistle is—the style of an epistle is clear. He is writing for the intent of clear knowledge. And then the Nebuchadnezzar account, you're seeing the flaw, the narrative, in the same way in the rest of the Old Testament. When we look at narrative, we see the experiences of people and the narrative, and we see their flaws and failures. We see their sin before God. And then what do we see in the more documentary-style historical approach in the verses 19 up until um, 33? We end up seeing that God does what he does to the sinful men that have been documented in narrative. And so we're seeing these models, these things come together and coalesce to highlight God and how he works in his scripture, but also how he works with earth, with people of earth, with the nations, how he handles them, and yet how his scripture can be laid clear and made clear. So in all of this, we again see the glory of God in the, the stylistic changes of Daniel 4. Looking at verses 4, going in deeper in from verse 4 on through uh, the rest of verse 9, we start to get what might be a little bit of deja vu. We start to think wait a minute we've done this we've done Daniel at Nebuchadnezzar's bedside Nebuchadnezzar afraid and worried about his vision this feels really familiar and what do and what do we see in the first um, few verses of of the narrative in verse 4 he was at ease in his house he has a dream that makes him afraid And then in verse 6, so I made a decree that all the wise men should be brought before me that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. We've definitely been here before. But then the magicians, the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers came in, and I told them the dream. Okay, this is where we now start to see contrast. Nebuchadnezzar this time didn't say, as he did in Daniel 2, you need to tell me what my dream was, I'm not telling you. He's afraid enough. He's telling the dream, comfort me. Here's my dream. Interpret it. They cannot interpret it. We see in verse 7, then the magicians, they all come in. The Chaldeans, the astrologers come in. He tells them the dream, but they could not make known to me its interpretation. We've done this before, but here the tone, you can tell that Nebuchadnezzar has experienced Daniel and the blessing of God through Daniel over and over. And he has a specific experience documented for us in Daniel 2 of his previous vision and Daniel or God through Daniel interpreting the dream. And what do we see in verse 8? At last, Daniel came in before me. He who was named Belteshazzar after the name of my God and in whom is the spirit of the holy gods, I told him the dream saying, This time it's not Daniel coming in making a plea to the to the guard, saying, hey, can I talk to the king? I can tell him his vision and its interpretation. This time, Nebuchadnezzar says in his narrative, at last, Daniel came before me. It's like all the other magicians and wise men are the necessary checklist items he had to do. I have to call him in. It'd be bad for morale if I don't you know, bring in all my you know, VPs or you know, cabinet, when really, I've got the guy who I know He's a problem solver. He's the guy who's going to give me the answer I need. So he goes through this list. He finally gets his problem solver in. He gets the interpreter in and the translator in. And he comes in and he interprets this dream. He translates it from a vision into teaching from God. But this should feel familiar not just because of Daniel 2, but instead what is it drawing us to? Doesn't this sound like Joseph with Pharaoh? It is the same model. And when we later get to delve into the dream, we will see even more that it is the exact same model. It is the same situation as we had in Exodus, describing God and his approach to Pharaoh. Look with me, if you would, at Exodus chapter 7. We're going to look at... The first five verses. Okay, we're all familiar with the story of of Joseph interpreting the dream. Uh, Joseph interpreting Pharaoh's dream. God ends up showing his power through the ability to bless and to take away. We then have Moses later, many years after Joseph... Coming in and humbling Pharaoh, just like Nebuchadnezzar needs to be humbled. And so, if we look at Exodus 7 and we look at the first five verses, think about our connections here. Over these, we have a Joseph connection, we now have a Pharaoh and Moses connection. Look at verse, the first five verses. And Yahweh said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people of the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am Yahweh when I shall stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. We just heard it said, I will do my signs and wonders. If we flip back to Daniel 4, how did Nebuchadnezzar address God or speak of God? We see it in verse 2 and verse 3, and then again later in 33 and 34. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. Verse 3, how great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion endures from generation to generation. This callback to Exodus, the book of Exodus, is clear. It is consistent with the way God has always talked to his people. I am the Lord your God. I have brought you out of the land of Egypt, right? And remember, who is the audience? Who is Daniel speaking to and teaching to? And what is he dealing with in the time for the people That God is having Daniel speak to. It is a people in exile in a faraway land, away from the promised land, under the oppression of a king who calls himself God, sets up idols, and says, I am the king of this world. I am the power. I am like God. And it requires God to humble him. And so the people of Israel, who are the Judeans who are in exile, should be comforted by this. They've seen this before, they know how this ends. If you stand before God, you will be humbled, and God will redeem his people. And we see this, and they've already been promised this. In the first few chapters of Daniel, we saw God had already promised to redeem his people. And we see it again here in this passage, that they know, the Judeans would know the story of the Exodus. It is pointing to, these beginning verses continue to point to explicitly the glory of God and his status above kings of the earth, and his sovereignty and glory and dominion, and that no king or any other power can stand before him. But I will read for you Exodus twenty one through three. We read a portion of this as part of our catechism today. Uh, Exodus twenty one. Through three. God spoke all these words saying, I am Yahweh your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. We know it continues on to say that God is a jealous God. He is to be worshipped only. Him and him alone, not Nebuchadnezzar, not others. And so when if we, as, if we were to be Judeans in exile or we as Christians here on earth now can read this and know that this should tie us back to the work God has done by bringing out his people, redeeming his people, and that there are to be no other gods before him because he is a jealous God. Again, every aspect of this, the language, the wording, the author, all of this continues to highlight the glory of God and how he will redeem his people. In verses 8 and 9, we see Daniel coming in before Nebuchadnezzar and Nebuchadnezzar doing what he has done to this point. He realizes and acknowledges something that is true, but clearly a misstatement or something that is said in a way in which some knowledge has been given to him, but not true knowledge of God, not the true saving knowledge of God. Because in verses eight and nine, when he comes in, it says, At last Daniel came in before me, he who was named Belteshazzar, after the name of my God, and in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And I told him the dream, saying, O Belshazzar, chief of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you and that no mystery is too difficult for you, tell me the visions of my dream that I saw in their interpretation. So here we have our fifth and final pushpin, We see verse 8 and verse 9, he uses the word spirit of the holy gods. He says spirit of the holy gods. He's got it close but wrong. There's not multiple gods of whom God's spirit is blessing Daniel. There is one true God and one true spirit. It is not a spirit of the gods. It is the spirit that is God that is blessing Daniel and being used and working through Daniel to teach the things that God would have taught to Nebuchadnezzar and us today through Nebuchadnezzar's experience. And what is the purpose of the Spirit? What is the power of the Holy Spirit? This is the Holy Spirit who helped create the earth hovering over the waters at the beginning of creation. This is the Holy Spirit that was the power of the apostles testifying to Jesus. Turn with me to John chapter 15. John chapter 15, and look at verse 26. Jesus is talking about the helper, this Holy Spirit, and when he comes. And what will he do when he comes? Let's look at verse 26 of John 15. But when the helper comes, f- comes whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. The Holy Spirit bears witness about Jesus, the work of Jesus, and the glory of God. We know in 1 Peter that we're told every word that was, carried, that was brought to us by the prophets, every word of Scripture was carried along by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit testifies to the glory of God in his work. He did it in the beginning of creation hovering over the water, and if he has not changed, he continues to do it Today. The Holy Spirit. And so when Nebuchadnezzar identifies that there is a spirit, the spirit of the gods, in this case, the capital S spirit of God is working in Daniel to interpret this dream or to tell him his dream. It is the Holy Spirit who points to God. So I hope it's rather clear, if we're starting to circle up these pins now and putting them all together, that the answer to our one point We have one point on the back of the bulletin for this sermon, and there's one point ultimately, and that is the glory of God. It is the glory of God. All first nine verses of these, seemingly you could fly through, and yet if you slow down and listen, if you study a little bit, the glory of God is smacking us in the face with every verse. We looked at the Latin, the Vulgate. This isn't even—I mean, Latin comes after this. This isn't even part of this. But the fact that there was a question about where this verse belongs and that we see it clearly in the context of Scripture brings us to the point of not just those verses themselves extolling God, but everything in between is about God. What God is about to do in our future sermons to Nebuchadnezzar is about God and his glory. We looked at the perspective of the author, the various perspectives. And what is it? It is them learning, speaking, and attesting to the glory of God. We look at writing styles. This epistle style, it is speaking clearly in story form. It is speaking in historical documentation, in various styles, screaming about the glory of God. We then saw... The Exodus and the connection to Exodus and the Exodus account that these Judeans are hoping for and praying for and asking God to do again, and what we continue to pray, God, please, Your Kingdom come. It is them. It is a pointing to God and His glory through these connections. And then, lastly, there is an attestation to the Spirit of God, who, when He comes from the Father, sent by the Son. Proceeding from the Father, he testifies and bears witness about the glory of Jesus and the work he has done. All of these, all of these bear witness to God's glory. God's glory is inescapable, inescapable. I'm going to read to you again what was our hymn of of adoration, our hymn of invocation. We started today's worship service off with Psalm 145 and hear this language, and hear if it sounds familiar. I don't believe Nebuchadnezzar is quoting this. I don't believe that Nebuchadnezzar has access to this. I believe the natural result of the work of God is to say these things. Hear what it says in Psalm 145 and reflect on the glory of God. Psalm 40, 145, 10 through 13. All your works shall give thanks to you, O Yahweh, and all your saints shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and tell of your power and to make known to the children of man your mighty deeds and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures throughout all generations. All your work shall give thanks to you, O Yahweh, I have drawn and found the most obvious and basic conclusion of Scripture, which is the glory of God. It is everywhere. It is through all these things. It's through how he writes Scripture. It's through what he writes about. It's through how he communicates to us. Why did God create man? What is the chief end? It is for the glory of God. So then when we think about this application for us, when we consider what this passage and getting through this this portion, building up to what is the vision and the rest of the, the narrative and documentation of what happens in Daniel 4, we should be reflecting, do we see God's glory? Do you see God's glory clearly? Do all the works of God's hands, God's hand, show you his glory? I suspect you see God's glory most clearly on Sundays. I suspect you see it. But the reality is, we know it doesn't matter if it's a Sunday. It does not matter if you are Nebuchadnezzar, who hates and is fighting God. It doesn't matter if you're Daniel. It doesn't matter if you're a Christian, if you're an atheist, if you're a member of RRBC. It does not matter. God's work is evident, and it points to his glory. Even atheists have to testify to the glory of God. They fight it, they try not to, but they, they betray themselves left and right because God's glory is inescapable. If even the mountains scream out for God's glory and the return of Jesus, how much more would foolish atheists or people who fight God, who were made in the image of God to worship that God, be able to see the glory of God? Now, if you are in this church, you, have, you, have, you are here. I've just listed atheists. So you're, you're here. Likely you're not an atheist. Or if you are, I'm glad you're here to hear the testimony of God and the work of Jesus. But listen, you have been all witnesses to God's glory. And if you are not a believer, and if you do not clearly see God's glory, go to him now and pray that his glory will be made clear to you in the glorious work of Jesus Christ. Because we know if you do not, if you do not, you will see his glory more clearly than ever before. He will come in full, clear glory to you when he comes to judge the living and the dead. The judge will be glorified when he says guilty. And you will be the one judged, seeing that glory in its awe and its fearful majesty. Bow before him, repent, and beg for the glorious work of Jesus Christ to cover your sin. Brothers and sisters in Christ, how often do we start to continue just like those who are enjoying their sin rampantly? Although we are not slaves to sin, do we not find ways to get distracted and to have a dimmer over the glory of God come between us and God? We find ways to sin and in, and ultimately Make it harder to see God's glory. It takes coming together and worshiping, consecrating our hearts before God, confessing our sin. We sing the praises, and whoa, God's glory is clear. It's clear. Why isn't it, why isn't it clear on Tuesday at three o'clock in the afternoon? All of God's work is, is his glory. It's everywhere. I talked about what seems about randomly assorted things, and yet one conclusion's clear, it's God's glory. Why on Tuesday at three o'clock or just after that meeting with your boss or before you go to work, whatever it might be, that confrontation with your children, why is God's glory not clear? And why is it clear on Sundays? Yes, God has designed a way for us to worship him specifically in his worship service, but God has designed for us to one day worship with him in heaven every single day. And we are to worship him every single day now. Although we have a special worship service, why can we not do the things that are the worship of God's glory all the time? So I challenge you what is it that makes this different? It's because God brings you in and says, sit still and listen to what I have to teach you. You sit still. Then what do you do? You pray. We pray, to, and we pray together, and we pray earnestly. If you stay for the prayer service, you'll hear tears in prayer. We pray earnestly. We then stand and we sing the glory of God. We read his holy word and see the glory of God. And what do we do? We call this worship. It is worship. So what should we do in our week? Brothers and sisters in Christ, stop Going through your week, dimming God's glory, and then hitting the reset on Sunday. Starting off your week right, and then you dim it as you go. Instead, do the very same things. Find time to sit still and reflect on the glory of God. Pray to your God to see his glory clearly, and pray to your God that he will not allow you to sin as your nature would desire you to. Sing to God whether in front of people or alone. If you're a parent, what can be better than your children hearing you so overjoyed to forget what the world thinks of my voice, forget what the world thinks of the circumstances and the situation? I will sing the great glorious deeds of my God. Sing to your God. That song you like, great. I'm glad you're blessed by whatever song sounds good. Sing a hymn. Throw it on a playlist. Sing it out loud. Sing the glory of God. Is that not what David is doing throughout the psalms? Sing to God. And then read his word. Read his word. See the glory of God because he has told you explicitly. Go straight to the epistles. Go to them where it is explicitly laid out the grace and glory of God. And read your scriptures and see it clearly. Worship your God. Do not worship him only in this building. Do not forget. Do not throw up dimmers. Go about your day knowing that it is the worship of God. What flows out of the worship of God? An abundance. What do I do with this abundance? I tell others about it. It spills forth. When I am worshiping God, I am less likely to sin because my focus is on God. Not on fighting sin, but instead on worshiping my God. I say this so earnestly And I am telling you I am sitting in this front row hearing the same thing. I get angry at my children and I am not worshiping God. If instead I'm talking to my children about the glory of God, the amount of sin that they will do will decrease and the amount of sin I am doing is decreasing. So hear my vehemence and know that I am right there with you needing to hear what God is telling us this day which is the glory of God is the work of his hands and everything attests to the glory of God. See it clearly, worship with me, Go about your week worshiping our God. Let's pray. God, you have given us your holy scripture. You have not made it a monotone text that goes from point to point to point, just labeling facts. Lord, instead, you bless us with the beauty of poetry, of song, of different authors, not one person, not one giving of it, Lord, and yet we know it comes from one true living God, the capital A author of our scriptures. Thank you for making your scriptures something that we need to struggle and fight through, Lord. Because of that struggle, we look closer and more deeply and pray more earnestly, and we see it, and we see it better and better, and Lord, your glory becomes more evident before us. Thank you, Thank you for your glory. Lord, help us to forget ourselves and instead remember our purpose, which is your glory, Lord. Let nothing be a distraction, not even the difficulties of understanding scripture or the difficulties of languages and translations, Lord, not the difficulties of this world, Lord, because nothing in the end matters but your glory for which we were created to worship and ascribe to you. May you be glorified this day.